Buds fans, and welcome to the Babbling Buds Podcast, hosted by Jordan Jacqueline. 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 Welcome to the seventh episode of the Babbling Buds Podcast, hosted by yours truly, Jordan Jacqueline. A twice a week show covering the Toronto Maple Leafs and the NHL as a whole, bringing in a mix of various analytics and the eye test when discussing players and the team. I thank you for joining me today. And to make sure you don't miss out on any future episodes, follow us on Twitter at The Babbling Buds to stay up to date on all news surrounding the show. It's a pleasure to announce today's guest, Jay Fresh Hockey, one of the leaders in creating analytical-based models for hockey and turning that data into visualizations to make them easier to understand. Make sure to follow his Twitter, at JFreshHockey. And my first question to you, Jack, is, do you already regret picking the Tampa Bay Lightning to win their third-round series against the New York Islanders? Or is New York's style of play just not heavily favored when it comes to various metrics, such as expected goals for even strength offense and finishing ability? So the tricky thing about the Islanders is that if you were going purely by like the expected goals and everything, you would have picked the Islanders going into this series, at least based on what happened in the regular season. Uh, they were, you know, unlike maybe in previous years where I think they earned a reputation as being the team that kind of defies all the models and stumps all the nerds and everything like that. This year, they actually were one of the best possession teams in the league. Uh, they finished, you know, I think top five in expected goal share. Uh, they were an elite defensive team. You know, they lived up to, I think, kind of every reputation that they had. Uh, the Lightning, relative to that, uh, were, I think, a little underwhelming by their standards. And I think that, you know, a lot of people, including myself, I think kind of made up for that gap a little bit with Kucherov and with, I think, assumptions about their power play, which are, are, are fair assumptions. And, you know, it's not uh, out of the question that we could see them, you know, turn the tide in this series. But uh, I think that there, there was definitely an extent to which if you kind of went bit by bit and, and thought even more tactically about this series. Uh, you know, the Islanders were absolutely had a, a legitimate pathway other than just kind of a percentage bump to, to win the series. And I think what we saw tonight was basically the realization of all that, you know, them really dominating the rush game uh, against the lightning. Uh, they really, I think clamped down very well defensively forced the lightning to do a lot of things in the offensive zone that, played right into their hands and so i'm kind of left at the end of watching that series saying hold on i predicted all this stuff would happen but i still picked the lighting maybe that was the mistake so we'll see what happens with the rest of the series but uh don't let anyone tell you that the uh that the islanders are are defying analytics because uh this is all stuff that we could have seen coming well, I love to hear that. And, you know, it's going to be interesting. We're going to expand on these points more, just talking about uh, what players your model specifically favors for, on the Islanders. But this is a Leafs-centric podcast. So we got to talk about them. And with their Game 7 loss to the Habs, poses a lot of interesting decisions this offseason that I want to get your perspective on. So let's jump, jump right in to the Leafs offseason talk. Cap Friendly confirmed that the Leafs have to sign one of Zach Bogosian, Travis Dermott, or Ben Hudson if they want to protect four forwards and four defensemen, over seven forwards and three defensemen for the Seattle expansion draft. What route would you go there if you if you were the Leafs heading in to the expansion draft? So I think I mean of those guys, obviously I think Dermott is is the best player among them. 
uh, I guess a big question is whether he's the guy that they're going to let go to Seattle. Uh, so I, I, I'm assuming that any kind of, of, you know, extension work or anything they need to do just to get the mathematics of the expansion draft sorted is something that they'll kind of do pretty casually in the next little bit. Uh, but, you know, I think that the Leafs are, are in a position where they are going to have to give up a decent player and, and it might just be a matter of kind of figuring out which of, uh, which of Justin Hole and which of Travis Dermott they feel the most comfortable letting go. And maybe the decision that they make on that front will uh, reveal a little something about what their plans are going into the offseason and what kind of players they might target. Well, let's specifically highlight Travis Dermott here because he's a player that I believe is never really going to be able to fully utilize his skill set with the Toronto Maple Leafs. You actually wrote an article about this topic for EP Rinkside earlier this year about him and his very impressive micro stats, but even just watching him play through the eye test, he makes a lot of subtle plays to break up offensive zone chances in the neutral zone. He makes nice plays in transition and can use his excellent edge work to skate his way out of a lot of problems although as we saw in game six on that the Jesperi Kotkaniemi overtime goal it can't cost him he thrives against facing the opposition too in terms of third and fourth line competition I'm just curious do you think Travis Dermott can really thrive as a Toronto Maple Leaf and ever get into a top four position or do you think it's going to have to be somewhere like Seattle well I think the numbers game is kind of against him just because of his handedness uh you know the thing with with Dermott that that's always been the issue you know, no matter who you talk to is, is the way that he plays is so aggressive. You know, there's some defensemen who kind of fit the analytical darling mold uh, who do so because they play maybe a, a, not, a not so flashy and, and kind of passive game. Uh, I think Victor Mete defensively is a good example of that, where he is, is very passive, but he's kind of intelligently passive where he kind of pushes players or uh, opposing forwards to areas of the ice that, uh, uh, are beneficial to the Habs, but Dermot is a really confrontational player. And uh, the, the result of that is both, like you said, uh, very good overall of overall results analytically, uh, very good micro stats in terms of, you know, defending the blue line because he's stepping up at the blue line so often, you know, that means he's stripping the puck away from a lot of his opponents, but it also means that he's going to get burned uh, quite a lot. And I think that that is probably something that's turned a lot of Leafs fans against him is, you know, when you're a player like that, the mistakes that you make are going to be really big ones and really visible ones. And, and ones that in some cases can really put your team into a tough situation, especially in the playoffs. So I, I could see Dermot being a guy that the Leafs kind of just decide is uh, not necessarily, you know, worth the trouble in, in, a, in a bottom pair role especially with uh, Rasmus Sandin, I think, taking a more important role in the blue line. And uh, depending on what they feel like they're going to do with Riley, I could totally see them being content to let him just go to Seattle and uh, we might be able to get a chance to, to see what he does in an expanded role with an expansion team. Uh, and, and, you know, this might be a Shea Theodore situation uh, or it might be a guy who can't really get any coach on side. And uh, in a couple of years, we're talking about him. as just kind of a depth guy. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how his career goes. And, uh, you know, let's just move on here because it does seem like the Leafs are going to be losing Alex Kerfoot in the Seattle expansion draft. Who is the third line center that intrigues you this offseason that you could see them replacing him with? A few names I'll just throw out there. I know some people want Jared McCann out of Pittsburgh. I don't necessarily think that's very likely. Derek Ryan is an interesting name for me. Is there anyone else you would throw in there that you think the Leafs should target for the third line center position? Yeah, I mean, the third line center is, is kind of a tough thing to sort out because 
you know, I mean, Jared McCann, I assume the Penguins are, are going to be happy to, to just re-sign him. Uh, you know, a lot of the options available are kind of guys that you maybe think of being like a third slash fourth line center. Uh, you know, like Derek Ryan being an example. Like he is uh, a very strong player analytically, but it's it's in a purely defensive sense. You know, he's very much in that kind of Riley Nash vibe of a guy who's not going to provide you any offense, but uh, he'll get the job done defensively. So you might want that more in a, in a fourth line spot. Um, you know, I, I think that the, the Leafs are probably going to be able to to dig someone up. Uh, there isn't really anybody that's specifically coming to mind, especially as a trade target. Uh, I, I I do wonder whether Kerfoot is the guy that, that Seattle ultimately ends up taking uh, just because, you know, he does have uh, you know, does he have, he has two years left on his contract, I believe, or, or three years. He has two years left on his uh, current four-year deal that he signed two seasons ago. Yeah. So I, I could see if Seattle is kind of, especially since this where they're trying to play things cheap, I could see them trying to target somebody else instead of Kerfoot, but obviously we don't have any way of knowing that for sure. But, you know, I, I think the Leafs, it wouldn't surprise me if, if what they, the route they ultimately end up taking is, you know, doing what they've, they've done, you know, previously. I don't know if necessarily they're going to be looking into like the, you know, 37 year olds again this year, but you know, I'm, there are going to be some depth or some cheap depth players that are available around the league. You know, maybe like a Freddie Goudreau type might be somebody they could look at uh, or, you know, they could go the other way and try to get uh, Michael Granlund and, and maybe try to get a little bit more offensive upside in the bottom six, but uh, it'll, it'll definitely be interesting to see what they do uh, because obviously depth is kind of a consequential thing for the, for the Leafs at this point with the way that their salary is set up. So definitely a bit of a tightrope to walk. Yeah, it will definitely be interesting there because you have to think they try to solve that problem externally because internally they have Adam Brooks who did showcase himself pretty good in a fourth line position next to Thornton and Spezza. And they did sign Seminov out of the KHL. So you already know just like based off their previous experiences with Miko Letnin, Alex Barabanov, Ilya Mikheyev, they're going to give that guy a shot to play. I just don't know if it's necessarily going to be in a three C role, but our last little Leafs discussion here is, is there really a situation where the Leafs consider trading Morgan Riley as he's one year out from being an unrestricted free agent and where could be a potential landing spot for him in your opinion? Uh, I mean, I think trading Riley is definitely something that they should think about. Uh, if, if he was locked up on a nice contract, then I think it would be one thing, but the fact that he kind of has that one year out to UFA He's a, a big point producing defenseman. We know that they make a lot of money and, you know, that could really be like if they have to give him, you know, seven, eight million, something in that range at the end of the season, I, I could see that being something that really kind of hinders their cap situation. Uh, you know, a comparable for the Leafs that, you know, I'm, I'm sure that you've heard a lot, uh, you know, a lot of people bring it up is kind of the early 2010s uh, capitals. Uh, you know, that team, obviously, you know, they had, their own kind of analogs to the Columbus series. You know, obviously they uh, had the issue with Montreal. Uh, you know, I think in the case of, of Toronto, they've had series where they've been legitimately outplayed. They've, they've had a couple series where they've been goaltended. Uh, you know, and, and, and what they did was they kind of picked who the, the most important parts of the core were, and, and then they kind of moved on in other senses. And, you know, you can kind of see the parallel between uh, Mike Green and Morgan Riley if, if you – you know, really want to look at it from that perspective. And and with that in mind, I, I think it would make sense to at least look into trading Morgan Riley, uh, especially if you have something else lined up uh, to bring in uh, a right-handed defenseman who, who you think can play a, a significant role in that team. But 
you know, in, in terms of teams that might be interested in it, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd have to have kind of a list of teams that have a big gap in the left hand because with the Seth Jones talk, there's been a lot of discussion about teams that really need a right-handed defenseman. Uh, the left-handed situation is definitely a little tougher. I, I have heard people talking about the Penguins being interested in him, but I, I just don't see that making sense. But I, I think they should at least look into it. Uh, uh, I, I like if, if you have a guy who's a year away from being a UFA and you're as cap strapped as the Leafs are, I think you do have an obligation to at least give yourself knowledge of what's out there and, and put yourself in that position. Well, I know a lot of people, especially on Leafs Twitter, want to see them try and acquire Dougie Hamilton, whether it's as a free agent. And I know there's people that believe maybe Morgan Riley could somehow end up on the Carolina Hurricanes. I don't know necessarily why the Hurricanes would want to do that. There, that would definitely be a downgrade, in my opinion. Do you think there's any uh, truth to that, that that could potentially be a possibility for both these teams, that Hamilton ends up in Toronto and Riley ends up in Carolina in some sort of fashion? Yeah, I mean, I, I could I can see a situation where Hamilton to Toronto becomes a thing, but I just I just don't see how that works out financially. Uh, you know, they'd have to do a lot of stuff to to make because you know Dougie Hamilton, you know, he might be underrated, but he's not so underrated that he's not going to be making you know upwards of seven million bucks, probably more than that. So you know, like this is a serious roster move that that they would be making. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big Dougie Hamilton fan. And, and even with that, you know, I'd still be a little bit nervous about the possibility of having him, you know, on, on kind of a seven year contract at, at serious money, just like you kind of have the obligation to be a little worried about that uh, for any player who is, you know, getting on to 30 years old. And, uh, you know, like this is a position that the, the least have kind of put themselves in with John Tavares already, where there's already people who are skeptical about how advisable the Tavares contract was you know if you're a team that's kind of strapped up against the cap building the rest of your roster through unrestricted free agency is not always the best way to go so I, I think it makes sense for them to do their due diligence on on Hamilton and, and see if they can get a good price on him but uh, despite his strong reputation in analytical circles I do think you kind of have to you know take a look at the age and the free agent situation and and maybe consider going another route yeah, I agree with you there. It's going to be very fascinating to me because I honestly just have no idea what the Leafs are going to do in that regards to Morgan Riley. I know the Vegas Golden Knights somehow I've seen uh, even some people on Leafs Twitter say that maybe even Riley could end up there in some fashion. I don't necessarily know how possible that's going to be because obviously they already have Petrangelo signed, but who knows? Vegas always makes the cap room, so I'm sure they could figure out a way, but with that in mind, let's head into our general NHL news. And we talked about it already. We're going to talk about the New York Islanders. And according to Mike Kelly, the rush chances in game one were 9-0 to in favor of New York. What players on their team really stand out according to your model? Yeah, so, well, so the Islanders are kind of, you know, they're the, a classic team that's more than the sum of their parts, I think would be a good way to put it. Like they really don't have any players that really stand out as being stars. Uh, you know, even Matthew Barzell, who obviously has, you know, elite talent, he doesn't necessarily translate it into, you know, whether it's point totals or whether it's, you know, gaudy, you know, scoring chance stats or anything like that. Uh, you know, they really are kind of a, a depth, you know, beat you by committee kind of team. Uh, the real stars that they have uh, in, in terms of, you know, analytical results are uh, Adam Pellick and Ryan Pulak, that top pair that has been, essentially kind of the anchor of this team since the bubble last year 
and and the the playoff bubble last year was kind of the first time in the Trots era where this Islanders team had like elite underlying numbers. You know, they were dominating games of five on five in a way that they hadn't done, you know, even in that first year. Uh, and they've just kind of kept it up on there. And, and if you look at how it breaks down, you know, basically all of that, all those gains have happened with Adam Pellick and Ryan Pulak on the ice. Like they've, as a pairing, just reached a completely new level of, uh, of dominance. And, and I think that that's a huge part of what the Islanders have been able to do is relying on those two super steady defensive defensemen. Uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, anybody who's watched them in the playoffs know, like this is a team that tends to get themselves caught in their own zone which is, you know, kind of the classic big analytical no-no. You, you know, we stress puck possession and, and scoring chance shares and all that. Um, but like you alluded to with that stat, the thing the Islanders do at a very high rate and, and in a very underrated way is attack off the counter attack. Uh, you know, a lot of people think of the Islanders as this really boring team, you know, as this slow team, you know, not super fast skaters on that team. You don't really think of any, any huge burners they have. Uh, but the way the Islanders play, they actually do set themselves up for quite a few rush chances. You know, they're one of the more rush-reliant teams in the league. And the reason they do that is that when an opposing team tries to enter the zone against them, uh, they line guys up on the blue line. You know, if they try to enter the zone with possession of the puck, a lot of the times they're going to get stopped and, and suddenly you're going to have a numerical advantage for the Islanders the other way. So, you know, in this game, it manifested itself so that the Isles ended up having nine rush chances uh, and, and the Lightning were not able to do anything because as soon as they would try to carry the puck along the blue line, they would have a defenseman uh, or even kind of a, a center back uh, who was just stopping them from entering the zone. So it really is a situation where when you're playing the Islanders, you basically have to dump it in. And, uh, you know, the Isles have guys who are who are heavy and, and strong on the blue line who are able to win those battles down low and, and get possession of the puck back. So if you can establish possession against the Islanders, you're probably going to be in their zone for a long time and and the lightning are a team that really likes to cycle really likes to generate shots from the point uh you know we're probably going to see a whole lot of extended zone time for the uh for the lightning but if the islanders can win the rush battle as much as they did tonight you know this would be basically the lightning playing into their hand completely and uh we could see the islanders really make a good push here to, to make it to the cup final well, you know, Jack, I somehow find a way to bring this up every episode, but it's pretty shocking to think this team even traded Devontae's for two second rounders in the offseason to Colorado. I know that was a cap-related move, and obviously Lou Lamorello had been heavily criticized for maybe making a signing like Leo Komarov that kind of forced their hand to trade Devontae's, but they've been able to find players such as Noah Dobson, you know, who have been able to step into that blue line and make pretty immediate impacts, not at the level of Devontae's, but at least being able to be steady enough that they're at the conference final at at this rate and obviously they traded for Kyle Palmieri in the for at the trade deadline and he was rated in the 86 percentile and his uh weighted war for this past season I believe I saw on your visualization so they're I mean they're making really good trades here in terms of uh the as assets they're acquiring I'm just curious is there a situation where you really do believe this group of players led by Barry Trotz and his tremendous coaching staff that includes Mitch Korn do you really think they're going to win the Stanley Cup I know you mentioned cup final but do you really think that they could be winning the Stanley Cup this season I think they could, uh, you know, and I, I get that that's kind of a cop-out answer because, you know, at this point, four teams that could win the cup. Yeah, who knows? Uh, but, right? you know, I, I think that the, uh, the, the way that this team was constructed, obviously there are points that uh, have been 
pretty heavily criticized and I, and I think validly criticized, you know, there, there are a lot of decisions that, that Lou Lamarillo has made. I think uh, trading Devon Taves for that return, I think was, was one of them. Uh, and, and, you know, his hand got forced on that Devon Taves trade by all the other contracts that he had given up and, and kind of, you know, filled up his cap space with. Uh, but, you know, I, when people talk about, you know, especially a lot of Leafs fans talk about, uh, Lou Lamorello being this horrible GM who has made bad roster move after bad roster move with the Islanders. And, you know, they just keep winning. You know, I, I think that the strength that Lou Lamorello had as a GM was in kind of building up the organization, not in terms of player personnel, but kind of in terms of stature and reputation to the point where he was able to get Barry Trotz to leave a Washington team that had just won the Stanley cup to join an Islanders team playing out of a crappy old building uh, that had just lost its franchise player. You know, there's no other GM, I don't think, in the league that would have been able to convince uh, Barry Trost to to jump to that situation. And I think Mitch Korn is is another example of, of, you know, you want to have Lou Lambrello in the organization. I think that adds a lot of credibility to what you're doing. And so a guy like Mitch Korn and, and, you know, the the Leafs, I think it was like the Marlies goalie coach, uh, also hopped on to the Islanders, and he's been a huge part of that too. So, you know, you kind of make your own situation where Trotz has been able to implement a system that, especially in the past year, calendar year, has really been able to come together and, and turn this team into something of a powerhouse, which it definitely wouldn't have been otherwise and, and definitely doesn't look like on paper. So, you know, I, I think that we can definitely criticize roster moves that he's made, but I think overall, this is just one situation where you get a sense that, you know, it's not just about stacking up a pile of players that have, you know, good numbers or a good eye test together. It, it really is about kind of putting together an organization that serves the system and, and that can play properly the system that it's coached in. And, uh, you know, these are the results. And it wouldn't surprise me at all to see the Islanders win the cup this year. And considering how their roster looks on paper and, and how they were projected at the beginning of the season. You know, I think that that's a, a pretty impressive feat by, uh, by trots. No, I agree with all the points that you're making there, especially the point that, you know, Lula Lamorello just kind of uh, garners respect across the league. Even Jim Heller, former Leafs assistant coach did uh, go to the Islanders to join uh, Trotz's coaching staff there. So, you know, they obviously love uh, Lamorello, whether it's all, that's why he acquires all his former players like Palmieri or say Jack, as we've seen. And uh, they all want to play for this guy and they want to play for Trotz as well. It's definitely going to be interesting to see how this team performs in the remainder of these Stanley Cup playoffs. But another team that's still in it, the Montreal Canadiens, and they are currently ranked first out of the remaining four teams by 5v5 expected goals for percentage, according to top-down hockey's model. Why do the Habs consistently rank so high in this metric? And will it be enough to face the Golden Knights, who rank just 0.5% off the Canadians at 53.1%? Yeah, I mean, the Habs have been a very strong 5-on-5 team for the past couple of years. Uh, You know, sometimes they don't necessarily get the goals to match up with it. Sometimes the goaltending falters uh, and... You know, but for the most part, you know, the Habs have been very good at generating scoring chances on a pretty consistent basis. There, there are flaws in the way that they play. Uh, you know, a, a lot of, you know, they don't really possess the puck within the zone very well. There's a lot of one-and-done chances. You know, you can pick apart issues with the way that they play, but, you know, the ultimate result of it is you have a team where their biggest issue in the past couple of seasons has been goaltending. 
uh, and special teams. And in the playoffs, we've seen this team uh, get the goaltending. Obviously, you know, Carey Price has been the best goalie in the playoffs so far. And uh, their penalty kill has been exceptional as well. And so you take this team that really their main issue was that they weren't able to translate, you know, good five-on-five play uh, into results because they weren't able to get the goaltending and, and the special teams play to match up with it. And, and suddenly they're getting some of that, you know, like the, they were able to hold on against the Leafs. You know, they lost those three games against Toronto where, where Toronto dominated them, uh, but they won four games that were basically a toss up. And I think that there's a lot to be said for that. And a lot of that comes down to goaltending, but you know, ultimately your goalie is part of your team and you, you got to give them credit for that. And then they, they walk into Winnipeg, and, you know, yes, Winnipeg was one of the weakest playoff teams that we've seen in a while, especially in the second round. But, like, they destroyed Winnipeg to an extent that literally we haven't seen in the playoffs in the past 15 years or so in terms of their share of, of scoring chances. So, you know, this is a, a real dangerous team, even if they don't necessarily have the star power of the other teams in the playoffs. And obviously they are the underdogs against Vegas because, you know, Vegas can do a lot of what Montreal does. They play in a similar way to Montreal. Uh, the difference for them being that they do have that star power in, in Mark Stone and, and Max Pacioretty uh, to, to really kind of dig in on the power play and, and you know, take over games. But, you know, I, I, I would definitely favor Vegas in this series. But, I mean, especially with the way that Price has been playing, it's uh, – not out of the question that we could be seeing a Cinderella run taking the cup final. Yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting for sure in terms of, I mean, this team even added Cole Caulfield at the end of last season. I know there's not enough of a sample size to garner necessarily the micro stats. I don't know if you've looked into that at all, but, and he hasn't even necessarily been their goal scorer. He's been an, an elite uh, playmaker actually assisting on that Tyler Toffoli overtime winner to send them to the conference finals. I'm also curious, you know, we got to talk about the man that runs the show in Montreal, and that is Mark Bergevin, who is rumored to sign a three-year lucrative deal to stay with the Habs. What do you think of that potential decision there? Uh, well, I think for most of the, fan, the Habs fans that I know are kind of hoping that they can win the Cup so that the cost of that would be worth it. You know, I don't think that Mark Bergevin is the worst general manager in the league, but I also don't think he's one of the better ones. I think that a lot of the decisions that he's made have had some, you know, decent consequences and, and might make this team kind of struggle to to continue to contend after this season. But at the same time too, you know, this is a results driven league and, and it's not surprising to me that he's uh, finding himself in this position with the Habs making the conference final. But, you know, I don't think that this Habs team is necessarily uh, uh, bound to be a perpetual contender. Uh, even with the young players coming in, I think that they've saddled their cap with a lot of, you know, not great players, uh, especially on the blue line. But, uh, you know, I mean, he's made, he made some decisions this year that, that were ridiculed at the time and, and I think have pretty well paid off. Uh, I, I remember plenty of Leafs fans uh, making fun of the Perry acquisition while holding up Wayne Simmons. And, you know, I think not a lot of people would deny that Perry was more of a factor than, than Simmons was in the first round and, and since then. So, you know, I, I think most of the most Habs fans I know are just – enjoying this run while they can and hoping that it can get stretched out a little bit further and and maybe aren't too excited about uh, seeing Bergevin carry on as the GM of this game for another couple of years. 
Yeah, I mean, it's quite fascinating to me. You know, the former left-handed defenseman uh, potentially being signed to a three-year deal in Montreal. They would love to see that, eh? Except, uh, you know, he's a little bit older, so I don't think you'll see him playing anytime soon. I'm curious about this certain player, too, that we're going to be getting into, and that's Jamie Drysdale, as he had a 0% wins above replacement percentage for his 2021 player report card and was only just above replacement level on the power play. His quality of competition was truly surprising when I saw this for an 18-year-old defenseman as he was ranked in the 77th percentile in that metric. Why did he play so much for Anaheim this season? And was it just because they were bad? You you might have to ask that question to Dallas Eakins uh, because I I have no idea what the hell they were thinking. Uh, from from what I can tell from, from the numbers and from talking to, uh, to Anaheim Ducks fans who, who watched the games, it really seemed like they were super, super delicate with Trevor Zegers, you know, really sheltering his minutes, making sure he never got defensive zone draws and things like that. And they did exactly the opposite with uh, with Drysdale. It really seemed to be, you know, baptism by fire with him, where they immediately launched him onto the onto the, uh, the top pair with uh, Josh Manson, who was certainly not having a great season himself. Uh, you know, they had Drysdale play on his off his offside, and uh, you know, like you said they were facing, you know, the top competition of their opponents and, and the way that the duck schedule worked out, you know, that turned out to be a lot of games against Colorado and Vegas and, and Minnesota, where he really was out there against, you know, Nathan McKinnon and Mark Stone and Kirill Kaprizov. So I, I, I told ducks fans in, in the kind of the, when I posted that, you know, don't look too much into this. Like this is not the way that an 18 year old defenseman is supposed to be deployed. Uh, you know, he's, I think, the only defenseman in his draft class that came anywhere near to actually seeing NHL time this year. You know, he probably shouldn't have done it, but hopefully he can learn something from it. But, yeah, you know, it really is one of those things where you, you look at the context about it, you look at his age, and you really do have to just kind of forget that it ever happened. And, you know, at least maybe it's a, a bit of a cautionary tale for how you should start out defensemen who are playing on a crappy team when they're 18 years old. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I've seen the Cal McCarr comparisons made with Drysdale and it took McCarr a few seasons to be ready for the National Hockey League. Anyways, I'm sure we would have seen somewhat similar results to Drysdale had he been playing in his 18 year old season. And uh, I kind of just want to dive into some of the other microstats for his report card. And I want you kind of to explain maybe how they can be misconstrued. His goals per 60 was ranked in the 88th percentile. But his war percentage, as we mentioned, was at zero percent. So I want to kind of, ex- I want you kind of to explain why was that the case for those who may be unfamiliar with how your model calculates these numbers. How could it possibly be at zero percent of his goals for per sixty? Is that in the eighty eighth percentile? Yeah. So for defensemen, really, what we value and, and what goes into the the war model, which uh, my friend Patrick Bacon uh, has put together, uh, what really matters for defensemen is kind of how they tilt the ice when, when they're out there, you know, are they helping to generate more scoring chances? Are they helping to prevent more scoring chances? Uh, stuff like goals, you know, if you're a defenseman who scores a lot, you probably shoot the puck a lot. And so that probably helps out your, uh, your rating in those categories. But in the case of Drysdale, you know, like you said, his, his finishing was, you know, 99th percentile. What that means is that he scored a bunch of low percentage shots, which are, you know, if there's, one thing that we can say confidently about defensemen it's that their shooting performance is not very consistent because if they're firing shots from the point, you know, one of them happens to hit a guy's ass and, and go into the net 
you know, that doesn't necessarily mean it's any reflection of their skill level. Uh, you know, it's one thing for forwards where they're generally taking higher percentage shots so we can get a good sense of, of how well they're converting on their chances. But in the case of a defenseman, there's just so much randomness and, and variability involved that we really don't value it that much. So in terms of the war rating, the finishing doesn't factor in at all for defensemen just because it's so variable. So uh, in the case of Drysdale, we just, we don't anticipate that he's going to be, you know, shooting at whatever elevated percentage he shot at this year, uh, next year. Uh, and, and what we care about more is how he was performing in terms of, uh, tilting the ice when he was out there and he had, I believe the worst, uh, scoring chance share in the league this season, uh, in the minutes that he was playing. And even when you adjust those for kind of the other factors of who he was playing with and his competition and all that stuff, uh, he still grades out the worst. So it, it's, you know, it's, it's a matter of what you kind of value and, and measure in defensemen. But, uh, obviously in this case, you also want to apply kind of the context to it as well to, to make sure that you're not, you know, just dunking on an 18 year old kid who got put in a pretty bad spot. Yeah, definitely. And you have to hope that he improves there. And I'm, I'm glad you could provide an explanation on that just for those who might be unfamiliar with how that works. And uh, we got to talk about this because I'm sure this will be fun. Seth Jones, you know, who has been such a polarizing player the past few years and is at the center of the eye test versus analytics debate. We went into depth on my Sabres podcast on this topic but now we know he's very likely to leave Columbus in the off season. In your opinion, what should his market value be and uh, which teams really should be targeting him in your opinion? Well, I mean, the thing is like, what should his market value be is it, he should be valued as a number one defenseman who's going to be available for anywhere between 3 million and five and a half million dollars, depending on if Columbus decides to retain like in terms of his market value, that's what they should get for him. And, and I think that they should, in a flat cap scenario, be able to get a, a pretty decent sized haul for him. You know, how I personally would evaluate him as a defenseman, I think is very different from that. Uh, I, I wrote a pretty lengthy and pretty extensive piece on him last summer. Uh, I updated it for, for the kind of compilation book that I released last uh, December. You know, I think that he is a very talented player who does a whole lot of very impressive things that don't really add up to results when he's out there. Uh, you know, I think that he's a guy that a kind of generalized eye test will tend to overrate. And, and the things that really stand out when you watch a game are the things he does well. And it's kind of the subtle things that are missing from his game and that limit the impact that he's able to have on the ice overall. Uh, that is obviously a minority opinion in the hockey world uh, no question uh, and I think the Blue Jackets should be able to get a return that's in line with the fact that that's a total minority opinion in terms of teams that should be interested in him you know again like I don't think that he's going to be worth the price that anybody pays for him so I hesitate to say X team should be interested in him uh, the teams that I would expect to be interested in him are uh, Vancouver for sure it, a lot depends on whether he's willing to go to Canada. There's been rumors that he's not into the idea of going to Canada, but, you know, I could see maybe that, that changing depending on, on how circumstances go. But uh, I think Vancouver would be a, a, a reasonable place to expect uh, to make a good offer for him, uh, considering their needs at right defense for a guy to play with Quinn Hughes uh, and, and the cap space they have opening up next summer. Uh, I think that Philadelphia 
I've heard quite a bit about that. They really want uh, a kind of long-term guy to play next to Ivan Provorov. And, you know, I think Provorov is a guy who kind of fits a lot of the same eye test versus analytics culture wars as Jones does. So it would be fitting to see them together. Uh, I guess the question would be whether the Jackets want to trade him within the division. Uh, and then, you know, one team that I have kind of constantly speculated about that has the same question mark around it as, as Vancouver is uh, Toronto because, you know, Jones, we know that Dubas likes him. Uh, he said last summer that he considered him an elite defenseman and, and the kind of guy that you're not able to acquire very often. Uh, we know that, especially if Columbus is willing to retain, which I, I people are saying that they're not going to, I really don't see why they wouldn't just to maximize any ounce of value they can get out of the trade. Uh, you know, if they retained full 50% on him, you know, there's a $2.7 million player for a guy who, you know, Dubas and, and most of the hockey world consider to be an elite number one defenseman. You know, I, I could see the Leafs being a team that would be very interested in him. I, I don't know what they'd be able to move for him or, or what his price would be, but that, that's a, a big question mark as well. But, you know, the real kind of fundamental thing is that if if one year of Jones is available, every team in the league is, is basically going to be – every team in the league that is trying to win next year is probably going to be interested in that. So I, I hope for the Jackets' sake that they're able to get a, a good res, uh, return on him because I think that they've been put into a, an uncomfortable situation here. I think they probably should have traded him a couple months ago at the deadline. I argued that at the time, but you know, there, there really are, you could kind of talk yourself into, you know, half the league being uh, realistic suitors for him. So it will be interesting. Well, I was going to say, Jack, your last point there kind of uh, concerns me because on the contrary, which team shouldn't be looking to acquire him? Because the one in my mind was the team that wears the colors blue and white that has a Maple Leaf on their crest, the Toronto Maple Leafs. Because obviously, I mean, after that game seven loss, people were trying to say that Mitch Marner should be traded for Seth Jones. That would just be ridiculous. I mean, the Leafs defensive issues, I mean, were very little and displayed in this series. They are a very strong defensive team. Obviously, we saw TJ. Brody, I believe, according to your model, was I think in the 95th percentile and even strength defense. He was such a fantastic addition for them. Jake Muzzin is very strong there as well. I really don't think they need to change their decor really at all, besides the fact that probably Travis Dermott won't be back. And uh, if you're trading Mitch Marner, who I obviously know didn't perform up to expectation, I just think you'd be really taking a step back there. And if, I'm just, do you see yeah, any I, mean, world? I just don't know. Like, do you I, see I a world? Yeah. I, I certainly wouldn't do it if I was the Leafs, but. <laughs> You know, again, you just kind of have to all the speculation with the Leafs is that they're going to make a really big move. Uh, you know, people are you hear like Chris Johnson and people kind of dropping tantalizing hints about players like, oh, somebody from an American team that didn't make the playoffs, who has one year left on his contract, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you are tempted a bit to, to add things up. So, you know, I, again, like I, I do feel like Jones theoretically would be the number one guy on the list for the Leafs if they were looking for a number one defenseman. I, I mean, you know, like you said, the Leafs have been said to have interest in Hamilton. So if that is the case, then then they are out shopping for a, a number one right-handed defenseman. So I, I guess we'll see. But, you know, obviously I, I think we're on the same page in terms of, you know, if I were Kyle Dubas, that, that definitely isn't the move that I would be making. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be very fascinating to see what happens there. The last question I have for you before we head into our three NHL predictions is which player produced the most surprising results this season, according to your model? What was like a funny player that like had like just a, a bizarre stats line for you, according to the microstats and his war, final war percentage rating? That is a good question. I think, uh, 
Well, I mean, the, the obvious answer right away would be, uh, would be Cody CC, uh, who, you know, he wasn't stellar by any means, but he definitely wasn't anything like, uh, what most people would have expected him to be coming into the year. I, I think with the Leafs, he definitely got a pretty broad deal because his, his lack of puck skills and his lack of offense really didn't jive very well with him being on that top pairing where he was having to handle the puck and, and he was on the ice so often with the Leafs top forwards. You know, I think sliding down to, you know, a, a top four or top six role with the Penguins, he was perfectly fine. You know, he wasn't a huge liability or anything like that. He didn't have to handle the puck that much. I think he just got the job done okay. So uh, it was pretty funny to see, you know, a list of players that he was outperforming, uh, you know, just because he had been such a running joke for uh, for so long. So Cody Cece is definitely, uh, it is definitely a pretty funny one for me. A- another one, you know, I guess two guys that you could point at and, uh, you know, say that it was kind of predictable what happened to them. But, you know, I think a lot of, there were a lot of people who were down on these players were, uh, Jack Hughes and uh, Capo Caco, I think both took a step forward. Although I think they just, they took step forwards in different ways. You know, Hughes really upped his two-way game. Uh, I think he became a, a, a lot more effective player in terms of possessing the puck. There wasn't nearly as much kind of walking into traffic and then and then giving the puck up as soon as he enters the zone. I think he became a much smarter player. And uh, it will be interesting to see how the Devils are kind of able to hopefully surround him with guys who can take better opportunity of the chances that he gives them. And then in, in Kako's case, you know, I, I was super down on Kako's rookie season, which analytically was the worst season ever, basically <laughs> uh, since 2007, at least uh, by, by those metrics. And, and, you know, he was a mess last year, just not ready for the NHL, not ready for the competition or anything like that. And, and this year I thought he completely transformed his game, uh, became a really effective uh, complimentary player, you know, you know uh, just really hardworking for checker, very good defensive play, uh, you know, really kind of turned the corner. And now I think even if he's not necessarily going to be a superstar, or, or at least maybe doesn't seem like, like that's the kind of player that he's going to be, at least I can see him being a very effective kind of second line or, or even first line complimentary player. So uh, those are two guys who the analytics were, were very harsh to last season who, I think turn it around in a pretty impressive way. Let's add in another player there that actually just recently surfaced, Michael Bunting. His player card was quite interesting because he had a 100. He was in the 100th uh, percentile in terms of his finishing ability, and he's a, a very strong defensive player as he was in the 87th percentile and even strength defense very below replacement in terms of how he actually generates offense but uh, even you said this in your twitter uh, tweet actually a lesson he's a, basically a lesson in what happens to a player's stats when they shoot 26 percent in 21 games i've even heard people suggest that toronto should be interested in him i mean he played second line minutes so that would be interesting for me because obviously the leafs might be looking for a second line winger do you think the leafs should maybe be going after a guy like michael bunting just because he shot 26 percent in 21 games yeah i did see that I, I would he's the kind of guy that i would probably stay away from just because you know not to say that he's a bad player or anything you know like you said he had good defensive results but you know we're talking about a 21 game body of work in his financial career and you know in, in theory you'd think oh you know that might be an underrated guy that leaves to go after but once you get into the fact that he scored 10 goals in those 21 games and, and like you said you know shot off the charts you know 26 percent you know, you kind of get to the other side where it's like, oh, somebody might overvalue this player based on that stat line. And uh, you might end up seeing somebody pay 
you know, like 2 million or 3 million bucks for him based on a 20 game body of work. So if, if he's coming for anything over a million bucks, I would say the Leafs would probably be best served to, uh, to let somebody else eat the regression. Definitely. And with that, let's head into our three NHL predictions. I'm going to be handing you a few true or false questions. And let's start off with the first one. True or false? Colorado doesn't need to change a single thing about their team in the offseason and should roll back the exact same group next season. Are you picking true or false for that one, Jack? Uh, uh, True if they can. Uh, I know they have... A lot of guys they're going to have to re-sign. Philip Grubauer is, is an interesting one for me where I really think that he got overrated this season by the team defense that he played for or played behind. He was below expectation in the regular season, below expectation in the playoffs, but he put up pretty good save percentage numbers just because his team is so good in front of him. So, you know, I, I would say in principle, yes, I think that they should be happy to, to run it back. Uh, but uh that choice might be out of their hands depending on how the next couple of months go. Yeah, I agree with you there. And obviously a few of their depth pieces might have to be moved. I was more so alluding, I guess, to a player like Kadri who got that eight game suspension. I'm just suggesting they probably shouldn't overreact to trading them necessarily. If he does it again, I mean, I don't know what you do there, but I mean, you just have to hope because he's obviously been quite such a playoff performer there. And uh, this kind of leads us into our second question true or false the Leafs need to trade one of their core four pieces to experience more playoff success are you going true or false with that one Jack I would generally say false I don't think they have to trade one of those core four pieces I assume you're talking uh, Matthews Marner Nylander and uh, Tavares yes okay Uh, yeah I mean I don't think they they could trade Tavares really if they wanted to uh, with all with the no move and, and with all that stuff, uh, you know, with, with Marner, I think that he's a guy that you probably explore trading. Uh, I, I think that it's another situation where, you know, I, I am not as kind of permissive of the Leafs, you know, five years playoff slump as I think a couple people are. I think there does come a point where clearly there's, some kind of legitimate hurdle that needs to be jumped over. And, uh, you know, it, it really wouldn't be crazy in my mind to explore moving Marner. But I also don't think that they need to sell him for pennies on the dollar or trade him for Jones or anything like that. So uh, I, I, unless they get an amazing offer for Mitch Marner, I would say that they would probably be best served to, to, to run it back and, and see what you could do to kind of restructure this team aside from those guys. Yeah, I agree with you. And I believe like the only Mitch Marner trade I'd really consider making, unless there's another one to be made, is a potential Jack Eichel deal. And I just don't necessarily see a trade like that being made, obviously, because they're going to be in the same division. I just don't know if the Buffalo Sabres would do that because they would obviously have a huge gap at first 1C. I mean, Marner would be the best player they could likely acquire unless you're getting a Quinton Byfield or Alexi Lafreniere from the Rangers or the Kings. But I don't know. I just don't know if there's necessarily a trade to be made there. Yeah, and, this, and I, I think yeah. with the way the Leafs roster is done up, I don't know if Eichel really makes sense for them to target. Yeah, I agree with you there. Because then at that point, you would have to put John Tavares on the wing. And uh, I know that I know Tampa's done that with Steven Stamkos kind of in, in his later years. And uh, it's probably going to be expected that Tavares at some point is going to have to transition to the wing because I don't necessarily know in his mid-30s if he's going to be the same type of play-driving center that he was in his mid-20s. In fact, I think it's very likely he won't be even starting potentially two or three years from now. But 
I just don't know if you could. I know Jack Eichel does actually make less than Marner in that regards, and the Leafs would be able to add, you know, eight hundred ninety-three grand there unless they're retaining salary on Marner's contract. So there's a lot of. It's going to be quite fascinating. The whole Eichel things is very fascinating because it does sound like he's going to be moved ahead of the draft, according to Elliot Friedman. Lots of speculation yep. there. This is the last question I do have for you, Jack. True or false? I'm sure this will be uh, quite the interesting one here. Is Cal Dubis a top five general manager in the NHL, in your opinion? True or false? Uh, I would say false. Uh, I, I am not as down on Dubis as I think a lot of people are at this point, but I'm also not as high on, on Dubis as people are. You know, I, I think that there is kind of a tendency among people who are, you know, analytics adjacent uh, to, you know, kind of play into the culture war a bit and get super, super defensive of management teams that use analytics uh, or, or have interest in analytics or factored into their decisions. Uh, you know, I think if you look at Dubis's track record, I think there's a lot in it that is super, super questionable. You know, I think we can be fairly as skeptical as a lot of people were at the time about the Deveris contract. Uh, you know, I, I think you can look at the negotiations that he had with Matthews and especially Marner as being pretty problematic. Uh, the, the decisions that they made last year, where I think they overreacted to a pretty clear, uh, you know, goaltending luck playoff loss against the Jackets and decided to kind of completely change their culture and focus on acquiring these slow veterans. Uh, you know, I think that that was a, a mistake and, and an overcorrection for them to make. Uh, you know, and then, you know, you can go down the list, you know, the the Barry for Cadre trade, that, that's another mistake. There have definitely been good decisions that he's made. Uh, Brody seems to have worked out so far. Uh, but I, I would be very hesitant to praise too heavily a guy who you know, walked into a situation where he had that much talent on his roster and, you know, still hasn't been able to kind of get them past that first round bump. So I, I would definitely be very hesitant to call him a top five general manager in the NHL until, you know, we see kind of a clear pattern of decisions that he's made that's been able to get them to the next level. Well, this has kind of been talked about by probably really only a minority of Leafs fans, but Kyle Dubas isn't even, in my opinion, an analytics GM. It's not like he's building models necessarily on his own. He grew up in the game of hockey, started off as a scout, you know, and eventually that led to him just progressing more and more into the management uh, type positions. And uh, yeah. he's been, he's obviously favors analytics he favors a lot of his internal analytics and i mean in ter terms of the cody cc comments he made last year that ended up not looking too bad after all looking at his results in pittsburgh although his obviously his results in toronto weren't amazing although they were better than probably the public perception of him was but i just the whole uh discourse around dubas is going to be very fascinating because if he if he can't do it next year and the least had the exact same results, it's very likely, you know, it's pretty hard to think he's coming back at that point or his job will be very much on the line if he can't get the team past the first round for sure. Yeah. I think it's, it's dishonest to have, you know, handle him with kids gloves just because he does pay lip service to and, and integrate analytics into decision-making a bit because you, know, you have to be just as fair with him as people were with, you know, John Chaka, for example, who I think is on the similar level of kind of analytics GM in terms of his reputation and his track record. And, you know, people were super critical of him on his way out. Uh, you know, Dubas, I think, 
got a little bit of a pass just because the Leafs are are a good team. But I think that it's kind of getting to the point where you have to look at the embarrassment of riches that he's had at his disposal. You know, he has the richest franchise in the league. He has all these resources behind him and everything. And, you know, it really is kind of a, a put up or shut up situation. So if, if the Leafs are going to be stuck in this kind of purgatory scenario for the next couple of years, then it really is hard to give them that much credit. I, I would agree with you. Yeah. And then to, uh, we've all kind of mentioned this too, but it's quite clear Taylor Hall probably should have been the player they acquired. I mean, even me, I tried to make the case that Nick Felino wasn't a bad uh, deadline acquisition. I mean, I, I think I saw in terms of like his forward checking ability, in terms of various stats, he ranked like in the top 10 for puck retrievals when forward checking or something along those lines. And uh, obviously a very great defensive player, but when you're putting him into a top six role, you know, you kind of expect more of him. And I, I understand he was injured and it is believed now that he had a back injury, but when you're acquiring a player, that plays Felino's type of game, he's very deceptible to get injured, you know, and you're paying the yeah, first and, and two fourth and round and picks. For age, you know, like he's, he's what, 33, I think. So yeah, yes. you're, you're, you're really kind of asking for that situation. So, and I think that was uh, an issue the Leafs had is they, they went old, they went vet, they went, you know, good in the room. And I think it was a mistake of him to, to back off on what the game plan was beforehand. And, and I think that it ended up ultimately costing him. Yeah. That, uh, that deadline performance was, I think, pretty uh a pretty big condemnation of of what their vision was going into the season and how it turned out so yeah i you know he he has a chance to turn it around like i said the leafs have the most resources at their disposal of any team in the league so you know he's got to be able to make the most of it and, and really kind of pinpoint some some good acquisitions this year because i think that we're looking at a couple off seasons in a row where he's maybe not made the best decisions and what I'll give Dubis credit is he is at least willing to adapt, as we saw last offseason in terms of the lead. I, I think we're very much going to see a different direction this offseason from him where he tries to go maybe the more Colorado route to just acquiring the best players that are available. Like, I mean, that's probably what you should be doing every offseason. I don't think you should be straying away from that. But Kyle Dubis is a general manager, in my opinion, that very much will adapt his approach to, you know, how he's acquiring players. I mean, his player evaluation is very good, in my opinion, but I'm sure he values Taylor hall more than nick felino he just wanted that specific need and uh i think you're just going to see a different kyle dubis heading into this off season yeah well hopefully for these fans we'll hopefully <laughs> i hope we see that and you know jack with that i believe we can end the show so thank you for listening to the babbling bets podcast and make sure to follow uh, Jay Fresh at Jay Fresh Hockey as he puts in quite the effort of making these visualizations for the hockey community. Once again, thanks for listening or watching, and we have babbled enough for today. Until next time.